Dietrich writes as fast as he can. As a messenger in the service of the Archbishop of Cologne, he was in a hurry. Dietrich had set out from Cologne. He is on his way to his lord, Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg, who is fighting Henry the Lion here in 1179. Why is the Cologne city lord fighting against a mighty lion? Perhaps a short explanation. It is, of course, a fight about power. Armies of warriors from both opponents move through the Rhineland and Westphalia, the latter being a part of uh, Henry the Lion's domains. And Cologne, of course, sees itself threatened. Above all, it wants to protect the valuable large monastery directly in front of the pre previous city wall, and the danger does not necessarily lurk through only Henry the Lion. For the archbishop himself, as a warlord, he relies on mercenaries from Brabant who are notorious for their destructive and plundering rage, even against the territories of their own moneybackers, especially when the pay is not on time. Dietrich had been riding through the countryside for a long time, always further to the northeast to Westphalia. Finally, he sees the first tents of the army camp of his master. In the camp he immediately sought out the archbishop's tent. There stood Archbishop Philip of Heinsberg. But you don't have to imagine here a man who just stood in his field camp in bishop's robes. The archbishop wore the clothes of a general. That Philip of Heinsberg was not only clergyman and administrative expert, he had already proven in the service of his predecessor, Archbishop Reinhard of Dassel. In 1164, he had successfully defended the castle Rheineck for the Cologne church against an enemy attack. The archbishop sees his messenger and he says, Come here, Dietrich, you shall have food and drink at once, but first give me the message you brought me. Dietrich hands the document to his master. No one had to read it to Philip of Heinsberg, because as a high clergyman, he could read and write, unlike most of his contemporaries. Dietrich saw how the archbishop read the short message. His face becomes angrier and angrier as he reads. What do they allow themselves? roared the Cologne city lord. All those present shuddered at this outburst of emotion from their lord. When asked by a guard what was going on, Philip of Heinsberg, the Archbishop of Cologne, replied, Those insolent Cologne people, they have massively expanded the city and are building a new, bigger city wall. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne a podcast about the history of Cologne, a city in today's Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as a kind of European microcosm. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows from the Romans up until our present time. The city expansion of 1179 and 1180 is once again a major milestone in Cologne's history. Why did the people of Cologne decide to expand their city on their own for the second time in the 12th century against all conceivable resistance? You'll find out right after the intro. In 1179, war rages in the empire, 
Emperor Barbarossa from the Hohenstaufen dynasty on one side against Henry the Lion from the Welf dynasty, the Duke of Saxony and Bavaria on the other. And these are only the most important titles of rule that Henry the Lion could show, being the Duke of Saxony and Bavaria. Previously a close friend of Barbarossa, a confident advisor even to the Emperor, Henry the Lion had been able to acquire numerous titles of rule and power over the course of his career. Before that, however, it was Henry who first had helped his cousin Barbarossa to the throne of the Empire in 1152 when he was still only the Duke of Saxony. But without Henry, Barbarossa would never have come to power, let alone been able to keep it for long without his, so Henry's, backing. In gratitude for this help, Barbarossa had given him many gifts and titles. This gave Henry the Lion a powerful special position in the Empire. With his far-reaching power, he was virtually a viceroy of the Empire directly after the Emperor, with large territories in what is now northern and southern Germany and beyond far into what is now Austria and Switzerland. Barbarossa was not initially bothered by this, because Henry was his ally. But over the years, the relationship went down the drain, as it deteriorated. I have no idea if that's a German metaphor that I just used and mistranslated. I have no idea. Let's continue. But why did this happen? Why did the friendship between the two deteriorate? Well, it's still one of the great controversies in historical science. Most in historical research portray the whole thing like this. And please understand, this is now extremely abbreviated for the sake of our focus on Cologne. As I already said, if you want to learn more about it in more detail, listen to History of the Germans podcast by Dirk. Henry increasingly refuses to follow Barbarossa in arms. Only in exchange for the city of Goslar would Henry perhaps reconsider. But Barbarossa cannot tolerate this, however, since the important imperial silver mines are located in Goslar. Without them, the emperor would be deprived of an important source of income, or better said, the source of income, that he can control independently. Thus, Henry finally refused to follow his, so Barbarossa's army in 1176. Barbarossa then goes to Italy without Henry in the year 1176. You must not understand that the emperor, like all medieval rulers, depend on his subordinate princes or magnates of the empire, such as dukes, counts or bishops, to give him troops in case of war. You know, the, the Duke of Saxony gives him a thousand troops, the Archbishop of Cologne gives him like, let's say, 500. Those, I make these numbers up just as an example. And the, um, uh, some count in some other place gives him 100 men to fight. You know, that's how the Imperial Army is. Um, <laughs> is uh, well, that's the composition of the Imperial Army. Everybody tributes a share of his troops to the emperor in times of war. So there was not yet a federal army like the Bundeswehr nowadays, which was centrally administered from Berlin and Bonn like it is nowadays in Germany. However, if someone like Henry the Lion refuses this, actually obligatory service to the empire and yet controls as good as half of the empire, 
then this has consequences for Barbarossa's regency as the emperor. Without Henry's numerous troops at his side, Barbarossa cannot prevail in the war against the rebellious northern Italian cities, which he considers still part of the empire. At the same time, the Archbishop of Cologne, Philip of Heinsberg, tries to fill this gap and thus win the emperor's favor. Cologne residents will therefore also have fought alongside the imperial army in northern Italy. But in 1176, Barbarossa loses a battle against the rebelling northern Italian cities and has to make peace with them for the time being. The perfect time now for Barbarossa to settle his problems north of the Alps with Henry the Lion. The emperor wants to ask his old friend and ally to reconsider and repeatedly ask him to come to various court meetings. So, hey, man, we're friends, let's have a talk. That's what most historians or most historical sources say. As I said, it is pretty much debate if that's all true that what I'm telling you right now, because what I'm telling you now is that Henry the Lion is the bad guy and Barbarossa is the poor guy. But there are other voices as well. But as I said, it is debated if this really happened like that. According to one account, Barbarossa wrote to Henry the Lion to his home somewhere in Saxony or Bavaria, maybe, or to Brunswick, and he fell on his knees before Henry. So the emperor fell on his knees in front of a duke. What looks like an act of humiliation from today's perspective was in reality an unmistakable signal to the lower-ranking Henry to finally submit to the emperor and his will. But Henry does not come to the court days. Still, he doesn't come, even though the emperor came to his house and begged him to come, despite several requests. Barbarossa cannot tolerate such an insult. You know... It is a time, as I said many times before in this podcast, when honor and reputation are everything. Acting like that, Henry is now considered a traitor because of these disrespectful actions and is accused in 1178 of treason. Exactly in this phase, the Archbishop of Cologne takes advantage of the situation and falls with his army in to Westphalia, which is located in the duchy, western part of the Duchy of Saxony, so the domain of Henry the Lion, in order to conquer it for the Cologne Church. So for the record, Henry the Lion, the powerful double duke of Saxony and Bavaria, even king-like, and a former friend of Emperor Barbarossa, is considered a traitor from 1176 and is to be deprived of his power. The so-called imperial ban is imposed on Henry. He is now an enemy of the empire and everybody is obliged to take arms against him. On the side of the emperor is especially the Archbishop of Cologne, Philip of Heinsberg, who wants to profit from this. Exactly at this time of conflict, the messenger with, that we call Dietrich in 1179 reaches the Archbishop of Cologne in his field camp somewhere in Westphalia with the news, oh dear, the Cologne people are building a new big wall around the city, bigger than ever before. Of course, this development in the empire did not remain without consequences in Cologne. In the last episode, almost as if it were yesterday, 
the citizens of Cologne had waged a trade war against Flanders hand-in-hand -hand with the archbishop. Now in 1179, they are again in conflict with the archbishop. The city's ruler, Philip of Heinsberg, is on the side of the emperor and is one of the leaders who urged the emperor to fight and disempower his former friend, Henry the Lion. Henry the Lion is initially a powerful opponent in this respect. He can count on England as his ally since his wife is a daughter of the English king Henry II. The Cologne people, in turn, who had just fought an economic war against Flanders and the emperor himself with England's help, were naturally on Henry the Lion's side. Now, not too proactive for Henry, but rather in refusal to give direct help to the emperor in the fight against his former friend. So, as had often happened before, the city ruler and the city population were once again diametrically opposed to each other on foreign policy or imperial issues. And so it was decided in Cologne to take advantage of the absence of the city ruler, similar to 1106, the Cologne people simply began to expand the city on their own authority and to secure it with fortifications. The expansion of the city did not come out of the blue. As early as the 1150s, people were flirting with a new expansion of the city, but the political situation had never allowed this. But now the city's ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne, was far away from the city fighting some war somewhere in Westphalia, and so in 1179 the work began immediately, initiated by the rich citizens of Cologne. But this time, the goal was not merely to fortify with earthen walls and wooden palisades as had been done in 1106, no, like a gigantic castle. Cologne was to be given a large ring of walls made of stone after earthen ramparts, ditches and palisades had first been erected provisionally as in 1106. Why this big effort? Stone, of course, is extremely resistant to attackers. Until gunpowder is used and modern artillery, a stone wall is actually <sighs> undefeatable as long as some people on it defend it. That speaks for a wall made of stone. However, as was the case in ancient Roman times, a wall is more than just a purely military structure. You have to think of it something like today's family homeowner who has the front yard facing the street with a fence painted in white yeah, in front of it. A mighty stone city wall promised prestige, reputation and prosperity. Besides the primary military purpose of security, of course. Such a wall was something fine which should embody the pride, self-image of a city and prestige. This can still be seen today at the Roman Tower in Zeukostrasse with its beautiful ornaments at its wall. On the other hand, a wall also implements realities that are proverbially immovable. The new, much larger wall now in planning now encloses an area twice the size of the city before. The walled area now also includes the rich monasteries or convents of St. Gerion, St. Mauritius, St. Severin and St. Pantaleon, which are located further outside. Monasteries were not only spiritual places of that time, money, economy and also agricultural land were important as well, but also many agricultural farms are located here in the place that is now 
a part of the walled city area. Furthermore, the monasteries that are now integrated into the city area would have been good bases in the event of a siege of the city for Cologne's enemies, as they could be converted into fortresses or even castles. Now this threat is eliminated with including them into your own city area. Cologne citizens had seen a few years earlier, during the siege of still Islamic Lisbon in Portugal, how much the civilian population there had suffered because they did not have any agricultural land inside of their city. So Cologne wanted to incorporate arable land as well so that it could provide for itself in times of a siege. And they did that. The war was simply to create facts. Everything inside of this wall is now Cologne and nothing less. Everything within this new wall of stone. It was the demonstration of power by the rich citizens of Cologne towards their archbishop that they simply pulled this off without him saying yes. And as I said, Cologne simply did that. They did not wait for the permission of the city ruler in the form of the archbishop or even the emperor who also has a say in that topic. On the contrary, Cologne had waited for the long absence of the archbishop to get the project off the ground immediately. It was done without the archbishop's approval, as I said. So much for Cologne, always flexible when it comes to loyalty. Who was behind the construction project? The question is, who would have benefited from it? It was probably the Richardseche, the rich brotherhood, the merchants of Cologne, who were eager to protect the city better from the outside, from external enemies, but also from the archbishop himself. After a short break, let's see how they proceeded with the construction. When I started researching for this episode, at first much resembled the events of 1106, when already the city was expanded in the 12th century. First ditches were dug, mounds of earth were piled up and wooden palisades were erected on top. But this time, they, the people of Cologne did not want to leave it like that as they had done in 1106. In the long run, they wanted to replace these new fortifications with a mighty semicircular continuous stone wall. While the earthen ramparts and wooden walls and ditches of 1106 were still built by the people of the city, from 1180 onwards the construction of the large stone city wall, including several dozen wall towers, relied on expertise and skilled workers from outside. Fortress architecture is not something you can do with just a shovel in your hand or a quick YouTube tutorial. You need professionals for that. This new stone city wall would become a century-long project that would last well into the 13th century. It was the largest building project of the Cologne Middle Ages, and yes, even bigger than Cologne Cathedral, even by a multiple. About 400,000 cubic meters of stone, for you Americans that is 1.3 million cubic feet, were needed to build the city wall. The weight of all these stones is 1 million tons. Again, 1 million tons. That means nothing to you? Then here's a comparison. This corresponds to a weight of three and a third Cologne cathedrals. 
Did you hear that? The city wall was as heavy as the Cologne Cathedral three times and a few numbers. But unlike the cathedral, <laughs> I have to say for the honor of Cologne, the construction of the new city wall made out of stone in the Middle Ages was largely completed after about 60 years and the Cologne Cathedral took 600 years. <laughs> Roundabout. All this, by the way, without the use of motor vehicles or machines. You have to imagine that. Stones were cut in quarries along the Rhine, shipped, and then transported along the Rhine River to Cologne. On land, wagons were used, moved by either animal or man. All of this from a town that, at the time, had maybe around 40,000 people max, people living, uh, max living in it. That was a large number of inhabitants at that time and made Cologne the largest city in the empire. Simply insane what those people of Cologne have done with the construction of the city wall. In the middle of the 13th century, Cologne was protected by a 10-kilometer-long wall that is, for you Americans, I think six miles, which surrounded the city in a semicircle on the land side with a length of 7 kilometers, so like 4 or 5 miles, and also protected the side of the city facing the Rhine in the east with a total length of 3 kilometers, so 1.6 miles. I'm so bad in, uh, in, in, in translating these numbers into American units. On the land side, 52 towers defend the city, while on the banks of the Rhine there were an additional 31 towers, 13 smaller and 14 larger towers. You can still see one of the larger towers on the Rhine set today, yeah, even today. The Bayernturm, the Bayern Tower, not far away from the Ubiering. But don't be surprised that the tower nowadays is no longer directly on the Rhine bank. In the course of time, something well, not something, but people start to build into the riverbed so that nowadays there's a distance between the tower and the river itself. The new city wall was about 7.5 meters high, that's, I believe, 25 feet, and in some places has a thickness, I love that word in English, thickness, of up to 3 meters, being 10 feet in American. However, the new city wall also showed that not only military aspects were considered important. On the land side, 12 city gates would be built, and from a military standpoint, that is far too many gates. But here one wanted to draw probably on a par with the heavenly Jerusalem as told in the Bible. Cologne was the holy Cologne, so indeed, the heavenly Jerusalem is a square, according to the book of Revelations. Uh, but um, Cologne was semicircular, but let's not so be so strict here. Particularly since these are only the 12 gates on the land side as well. Quite a few of them were walled up in the course of time in order not to have to protect too many gates at the same time. In case of war, I believe only four or five gates were open permanently and the other ones were closed, yeah, and those other gates that were closed were turned into storerooms, prisons, or quarters for the guards that were stationed there. Towards the Rhine, in the east of the city, there are about 20 gates and smaller passages in the city wall. This large number is obvious, of course, 
if you wanted to get to the city from the busy port area or vice versa. How do you finance such a huge construction project that spans several generations? Primarily through taxes on the trade that passes through Cologne and whether on the Rhine or by land, you have to see that this is the main trading street of central Europe, the Rhine River. So the cash is there, you only have to grab it, I mean, you have to tax it and put tariffs on it. Or through additional levies. For example, starting in 1212, there was an additional levy of one denarius, so a coin, silver coin, on each malt of grain. And please don't ask me what a malt of grain is in, in grams, kilograms, or pounds. I have no freaking idea. I don't want to look it up because I have no idea how to. So I'm not lazy saying that because a malt, it depends on where you are in the empire or in Europe as well, and it depends in what time you are. It always changes. So I cannot tell you how much a malt is. How exactly these walls were managed, maintained and repaired, we'll discuss that another time. But when the stone ring of walls around Cologne took shape in the course of the 13th century, it also cemented the cityscape for centuries to come. The walled area would suffice for a long time to supply the city. One had enough three areas for agriculture also integrated into the wall ring. Countless city views from later times have captured the city wall of Cologne forever. In fact, it has been almost completely demolished since the 1880s, but on a map of today you can still see the cause of the wall. The people of Cologne simply call the streets nowadays uh, the Ringer, so the rings. Interestingly, in the plural instead of the singular, it is actually only one ring street. But if you want to walk along the city wall, the, the original place where the wall once stood, you have to walk exactly one Powell street away from the ring street in the direction of the old town. Many street names also have corresponding names that tell you that there used to be the city wall there, like Pantaleon's Wall, Kartäuser Wall, or Mauritius Wall. I know that I just pronounced those street names half German, half English, but if I said Wall, you wouldn't uh, understand that the word wall is in there. <laughs> Now what Cologne did in the year 1179 was highly illegal. Cologne had created new fortifications on their own authority against the will of the archbishop and the emperor. Or at least started, better said. It must have been clear to the people of Cologne that the archbishop would not stay out of the city forever either. Philip of Heinsberg had already triumphed in the spring of 1180. Henry the Lion had been defeated by him. His lands and titles had been revoked by the emperor and the archbishop of Cologne finally got what he had gone deeply into debt to obtain. He was given Westphalia as a duchy for the Cologne church, which until then had been part of the duchy of Saxony, so part of Henry the, Lion, Henry the Lion's domain. The Gelnhausen document, issued by the emperor Barbarossa to the archbishop of Cologne, 
sketches to depose Henry the Lion as a traitor who had also restricted the freedom of the church. Of course, Henry's disregard for Barbarossa's invitations to court days is also addressed. The territories of Henry are thereby redistributed by Barbarossa and, as said, Philip of Heinsberg is one of the big winners. He receives Westphalia. Despite the foreign policy success, Philip of Heinsberg was still angry with Cologne. He, the archbishop, was the supreme ruler of the city, and he had been ignored in this matter. So he urged to the emperor to impose a penalty on his insolent subjects in the city of Cologne. The punishment came, but the punishment was lenient, at least as far as the money is concerned. Emperor Barbarossa imposed 2,000 marks of silver as a penalty on the people of Cologne, which they had to pay to Philip of Heinsberg, their city lord. A large sum, but compared to what the people of Cologne were getting away with, really peanuts. This was paid by the Richardseche, the Brotherhood of the Rich and Influential Citizens of Cologne. Oh, alone, Gerhard Ummatze could just pay it out of his own pocket, if you, if, if you think about it. Philip of Heinsberg alone had run up debts of 50,000 marks just to be able to lead the campaign against Henry the Lion and thus to be able to buy the title of Duke from Barbarossa. And guess where he lent all his money from? Exactly, from several rich Cologne citizens. Like Gerhard Unmarze, a friend of the podcast already, being in two episodes already. The archbishop could not use a quarrel right now. He was dependent on his subjects, whether rich or poor. Another imperial penalty against the people of Cologne was that they had to fill in the already dug um, ditch in front of the new wall in four places in some part, and that a single city gate had to be dismantled again. So when this was done, they, the people of Cologne, were allowed to dig the ditch again and build the gate anew. Has really a kind of comedy. But with this measure here, it was about the restoration of honor and the confirmation of the archbishop's supremacy over his subject in the city. Should the archbishop have his honor after all? Because it doesn't really sound like a punishment for the people of Cologne, especially when you consider that Barbarossa declared the expansion of the city, including the construction of the wall, quote, for the decoration and protection of the city, end quote, according to another document, which we will come to in a moment. The archbishop got his prestige confirmed, cool. Cologne, however, in turn, a fancy, powerful fortification the largest city wall of the empire, and in addition the largest medieval city wall of that time in Europe. And in the long run, the archbishopate finally handed over the military sovereignty over the city to the rich citizens of Cologne. An imperial document recorded all this. Documents are indeed interesting not only in terms of the aspect of direct content, but also what else is in there that may not be so obvious at first glance. The addressees of the document are Emperor, Archbishop, and the citizens of Cologne. The latter stand on an equal footing as an independent party in an imperial document, on the same level as the actual city ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne, and next to the emperor as well. 
This is an enormous gain in prestige for the citizens of Cologne and another milestone on the way to greater independence from the bishop's rule of the city. This should not be forgotten. Furthermore, the imperial document confirmed to the people of Cologne that they had rights and customs in their self-government and that these had to be respected. This is remarkable. Here the emperor confirms the Cologne people their rights against the on paper still undisputed city ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne. Remarkable additionally, since Barbarossa, think of the last episode, did not really have a good relationship with the city of Cologne. We also hear in the text of the document about the wards, which we had explained a few episodes earlier, those special districts of Cologne. And we also learn something about places in Cologne of which we otherwise only have knowledge due to archaeology or through later representations. We learn here since the text of the document was always in Latin from the quote Vetus Forum, so the old market. Since the market is already old, the text also indicates that the new market already exists as well. I would be happy to reproduce the, the, the document, the certificate in full here, but I'm afraid that would go beyond the scope. A medieval document had fixed elements how it was structured. Like, for example, a decent email is, or a letter, salutation, main part, call to action maybe, wishes, greetings, and a signature with contact details. Documents in medieval times have a similar structure. Now, of course, there's no such thing as the ideal form of a document, and there are countless subcategories that were used, or maybe not used, but roughly speaking, a document was divided into three main components. Protocol, context, and a eschatological record. I have no idea how to pronounce it in English, but let's continue. Protocol usually begins with the invocation of the Christian God, the naming of the issuer and the recipient. The content, how could it be otherwise, describes the facts. Here many elements can occur. One can announce something which then always begins in Latin with notum sit, so meaning it should be known that, and then something is said like that the farm of the person, some someone named Miller or something like that, belongs to now the man called um, Bill or something like that. But before that, it can also happen that first, it is told how it came to this decision that is now written down here in this document. Also, what threatens as a punishment if the component of the document is not kept. This is really all very superficial and briefly described by me. The eschatographic record as the last main component forms a conclusion as we know it also today with letters or emails. Here the place and time are recorded. Likewise, which scribe in the chancery has written the document here. And of course, the signature of the ruler. Often, however, the emperor or secular ruler cannot read and write, write at that time. Therefore, in most cases, the scribes at court make a ruler's monogram. So if you, your name was Otto, they would place an O 
there where would be north at the compass, another O where south would be, and the two T's at west and east, and then therefore in most cases the emperor then only has to draw a thin line with the with his as it's called pen in English then with it with the pen to complete the signature so he uses a feather I believe to make a, a to, to to draw a line and that completes the signature often this completion stroke as we call it in historical science is quite um, shaky which shows how rarely a ruler often had held a writing tool in his hand before we can just read the beginning of the document if you like only the beginning not the whole document quote in the name of the holy and indivisible trinity frederick that was Barbarossa's real name by the grace of god exalted emperor of the romans because human memory is weak and inadequate to the confusion of circumstances the sacred authority of the emperors and kings who preceded us in office legitimized, entrusting to the testimony of scripture, those documents which the age of passing times otherwise tends to alienate from human memory. Therefore we wanted to come to the knowledge of all the faithful of the realm, both of the present and of the following epochs, that discord had arisen between our beloved Archbishop Philip of Cologne and the citizens of Cologne both over the ramparts and moat which they had dared to erect against his prohibition for the fortification of the city and over the buildings which were known to have been built on the bank called Leimfahrt as well as on the marketplace and on other public land without his or his predecessor's official permission. This dispute has come to rest after the pronouncement of our arbitration awards and the approving advice of the princes of the realm, and after restoration of peace, it has now come to an end on all sides. End quote. That's just to give you an idea. Thereupon the facts are mentioned in the document, which we had already discussed, the penalty payment to Philip of Heinsberg, the temporary dismantling of some segments of the new fortification, and so on. But as I said, the Cologne team, in my opinion, got off with a very lenient punishment. Philip of Heinsberg, the Archbishop of Cologne, perhaps did not see the outcome of this conflict as so bad after all. He had one worst failure for the Cologne church, and the construction of the new wall had been against his initial will, yes, but at least it was his episcopal see that got this new wall. Practical, isn't it? So Philip of Heinsberg swallowed his pride publicly to believe. To save face, he even saw himself as the initiator of the city expansion of 1179 after all. And who knows, perhaps the archbishop would soon have another dispute with the emperor, as had happened before. Wouldn't it then be not be practical to have a well-fortified residential city like Cologne in which one could entrench oneself? The later grave of Philip of Heinsberg was decorated in the 14th century with a city wall in the New Cologne Cathedral, which was built from 1248, so long before, long after the events of this episode. With this, his fans in the 14th century probably wanted to subsequently impute to him the supremacy 
over this decision that he was the initiator of the great city expansion of 1180 and that in the end he had fought in alliance with the clone people against the emperor but more about that another time. I'd already posted a picture of his tomb on social media and on the homepage. His grave is really remarkable if you see it. The fact that the people of Cologne were proud of their city wall can also be seen later in art throughout the centuries. Like hardly any other German city, Cologne liked to have its cityscape um, painted and immortalized. There are many beautiful city views that show the imposing city wall of Cologne with its numerous churches, like the city view of the painter Anton Wunsam from 1531. His work adorns my homepage as a cover picture. Simply beautiful, especially the attention to detail, you cannot get enough of it. I post it on the homepage and on social media the coming days. And pride, Cologne could also be about its new big city wall. It was after completion in the course of the 13th century the largest medieval city wall and fortification of European Middle Ages. And yes, I know now people screaming out of their lungs that the city walls of Rome and Constantinople at that time enclosed a larger area and were, of course, longer. But think about it. They were both still from ancient times and not from the Middle Ages. The pride in this was also evident in other places. The second medieval city seal of Cologne, known to us, also illustrates this. What a city seal is and what it is so special about, we have already discussed a few episodes earlier. But here too, the city seal showed the ring of wall around the city. The wall was the pride of the city, a powerful military bulwark, but also an expression of the prosperity of the city. The area incorporated in 1179 had apparently been planned in advance. It was so sufficient to supply the population for 600 years, even in times of siege. The city owed all of this to the power struggle between Barbarossa and Henry the Lion. It had so distracted the city ruler, fighting on the side of the emperor, somewhere far away in Westphalia, that in 1179 the time was favorable to expand the city arbitrarily as a citizenry. Henry the Lion, to come full circle to the story, had flown high but fallen low in the end as an imperial prince. He first went to exile to England, where his wife came from. He was then rehabilitated in 1194, but Barbarossa had already died. But even at an old age as well, the once most powerful imperial prince of his time died in Brunswick in 1195. There, Henry the Lion is still buried in the Brunswick Cathedral until today. You can visit him and his wife, Mathilde Plantagenet, daughter of the English king Henry II, there in the crypt. The fact that his wife was an Englishwoman will be important for further history. Her son with Henry the Lion was to make it to the throne of the empire as Emperor Otto IV, and guess who helped him significantly? Right, our Cologne, and of course a little bit England as well. But that's a story for another time. So let's slowly come to the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
Many thanks this week to Antje, Dominic, Eckhart, Jutta, Sabine, Isabel and Anton for your um, little tip via PayPal. Everything else about how you can support me as well can be found in the show notes. In this episode, Barbarossa was once an ally of Cologne. But in the next episode, there will once again be stress with the Hohenstaufen Emperor. Why? You'll find out in three weeks. Until then, subscribe to this podcast, recommend me to others, please also rate me diligently in your favorite podcast app, and until then, take care and auf Wiedersehen.